Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts here, Dana Osband, here with my friend and Chavruta Ann Gordon. Our daf for the day, Masachat Psachin Daf Memtet. This is a doozy of a daf. Ann and I had one of those days where we're like, we could read every single thing that's on this daf. So I think it said we're going to try to read a lot that's on this daf and talk. Quickly. <laughs> um, I'm going to get started with the first Mishnah, which is a great Mishnah. Um, so the question here is, and again, in terms of a organizational point of view, I could see this Mishnah maybe been, being uh, put in a couple of Mishnayos beforehand. But the question here is when the 14th of Nisan falls out on Shabbat, right? And so Pesach really starts on Sunday, the night, you know, Motzei Shabbat. Ma'avirin etakol mulipnei Shabbat. So we get rid of all the chametz before Shabbat. Divrei Rav Meir. That's what Rav Meir says. So basically, you're already going to be eating chametz free on Shabbat itself. The chacham marim, the chacham saying bismano, right? No, you can get rid of the chametz at its usual time, right? Which is on Shabbat. And that's actually what we do today, right? Usually it's that we save like two challah rolls and you kind of eat it quickly on Shabbat and you have to be done by a particular time. Rav Eliezer ben Sadok, Omer, Rav Eliezer ben Sadok says, Truma milipnei Shabbat. He says Truma needs to be done before Shabbat. V'chulim bismanan. But chulin, regular chametz of you know nothing that's hegdesh, that can be at the um, that can be at the usual time. Um, and so the reason for this, the reason why he, d- he makes a distinction here between Truma and not Truma, is because it's difficult to get rid of Truma on Shabbat, right? You really have to, I guess, burn it. And you know, non-Truma, you could just sort of find other people to eat it. But something that's truma, let's say you're the lone coin somewhere, it may be difficult to get rid of. Um, and so then, you know, the Gemara here gets into uh, an interesting discussion where Rabbi Eliezer ben Sadok, who's quoted in the Mishnah here, they bring another brisa with him, Tanya, Rabbi Eliezer ben Sadok, Omer, Shabbat Abba So one time my father spent Shabbat in Yavna, and it turned out that this just happened to be Erev Pesach. Now, part of what I like about this brisa is it seems like a little unintentional, right? Like, oh, my father just happened to be in Yavna. Again, like usually that Shabbat before Erev Pesach, I think people are very aware of where they are. But this is where he happened to find himself. Uva Zunin Mimonashel Rebun Gamliel. And Zunin, who was a appointee of Rebun Gamliel, right? Remember, is the Nasi, um, came and said on Shabbat, he gia eight leva era to Hamet. The time has come to get rid of the Hamet. Bahalachti Achar Abba. And I followed my father, right? This is now Rabbi Elizabeth and Sadok talking. And he's saying that I followed my father and I got rid of the chametz. And so part of what's happening here, particularly with these types of halachot, where they're not necessarily learned from a pasuk, right? Most of what we've been learning so far with Pesachim is always over the Hilchot. Pesach has always been sort of very text-based. So here they're using a technique where they're basing it on, you know, uh, 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 you know, watching it in practice, right? And so Eliezer ben Sadok is saying, no, I got to this, but he doesn't address the truma issue, but at least that you get rid of it on Shabbos, the Hulin piece, because he actually uh, saw this in practice. Now, just a little bit of who, about who Rabbi Sadok is, right? So he's a second generation Tanakh. He lives at the same time as Rabbi Yeshua and Rabbi Eliezer ben Herkinus, Um and, uh, you know, he's mentioned very, very often. Um, and, uh, you know, that's, uh, and also where he's very, very famous is, is that that whole story with Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, 
right? When he gives up Yerushalayim, remember his, this is the Gemara and Gittin, which we'll get to when we get to it, that the three things Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai asked for is Tainli Yavna v'chachmeha, right? That that line of David and the Chachamim should be saved and, and Yavna should be saved and not Yerushalayim. Um, so, sorry, it's Tainli Yavna v'chachmeha, that the line of David HaMelech, which is the Nesim, Rabbi Gamliel, should not be destroyed, and that he needed medicine for Rabbi Tzadok. Rabbi Tzadok used to do a lot of fasting. The Gemara and Gittin describes this also. He ate very, 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 very little as a way to pray and to avert maybe the eventual destruction of uh, Yerushalayim. So it's just a little bit about Rabbi Tzadok. Um, but an interesting Mishnah that I think comes up again with a very practical issue, what do you do when you can't actually burn the chametz on Shabbat itself? So you'll, we'll still let you eat it, um, but you sort of do have to get rid of it. It's interesting they don't say how to get rid of it. And presumably, I think it's just that make sure you finish it up and eat it. We do this, right? When when um, Erev Pesach falls out to be on Shabbat, we do this. Right. We destroy, we finish destroying our Pesach, our last remaining chametz. We do beer with eating. Right, exactly. All right, and now I hand it off to you. <laughs> okay. okay, so there's a second Mishnah, right? There's that Mishnah, then there's that little bit of the Gemara. Now we've got a new Mishnah on the death. Um, and I actually am going to try to synopsize it because as we said we have so much we want to get to um the first half of this mission is talking about two cases really or more than two but it is described as two of where you end up saying that the person is in a situation where they would need to nullify the chametz in the in the person's heart right meaning that you you do beetle you ha- you say a sentence and we have this also as part of our liturgy now where you negate all chametz that could possibly be in your house and what you do is you essentially turn it into after the ara, you turn it into the dust of the earth that it should have no standing, no existence fundamentally, because you've changed its status by this one sentence, you know, as chametz. And what are these cases? So very quickly, somebody is going to shecht the Korban Pesach, and to lamul at bino, to give his son a circumcision. Somebody who's going to go to an engagement or betrothal feast at his in-laws or his in-laws-to-be. While he's in the midst of doing one of these things, he says, oh, no, I left chametz in my house. But we're talking about Erev Pesach. If he can both return and take care of it, destroy the chametz, and then get back to the mitzvah that he's involved with, then great, that's wonderful. But And he should do so. But if he can't, then he doesn't have to worry about rushing home to take care of the chametz. He should carry on his way to do these mitzvot, and the and the chametz he can be he can nullify in his heart. So that's the first, that's the first fourth, let's say, of this mishnah. Um, and then the second case is not when you're tra- you're you have a reason to be traveling for mitzvah because something happened to you, something befell you upon your way. Latzil min hagoyim, you're traveling and the Jews were attacked by non-Jews. Umin ha'nahar, likewise from a flooding river. More from bandits or robbers. There's a um, a conflagration. There's some kind of fire going on. This is when a, a roof caves in, right? Where the building collapses. In any of these cases, just nullifying your heart, meaning you are dealing with facts on the ground where you are either in danger or helping save people from danger or simply obstructed by get, trying to get home. Do not make the problem of your chametz. Don't, don't add it to your list of to-do things. Instead, nullify it in your heart. But then, if you've established, right, we talked about this in Erevin throughout, right, if you went to establish a Shabbat residence, 
right? So that you could so you could extend your tchum, then you know rather than go do the additional commandment, meaning this sounds like a person who's lazy, that person should go home and remove his chametz. So we basically have covered the grounds of you know if you're in the middle of a mitzvah or you're middle of just you're in trouble and you can't get home, you can still obviously get maybe it's not obvious, right? That's why the Gemara says it. You can get rid of the chametz that's in your house. How do you do it? How do you destroy it? With your words, where you simply nullify it. Of course, you then have to remember that any chametz you might stumble upon when you go back to your house has already been nullified by your own statement. Okay, now, once we're talking about things that you might have forgotten, like, oh my goodness, the fact that you have chametz at home, the mission takes a turn and says, well, what if you forgot that you had some kind of hectish, you had basar kodesh, you had some kind of consecrated meat in your home, right? Now, you've left Yerushalayim, but you had, you had this hectish meat in your home. Well, the moment you took, if you were to have taken that meat out of Jerusalem, then you would be in trouble, right? That is really just treating the, the hectic in the wrong approach. It's, it's disrespectful, it's considered, right? And then it talks about, well, how far have you gone? Are you still within vision, with a, within view of your shalim? At which point you could burn that meat where you are. If you haven't gone that far, you could return back, you know, bring it back to the Beit HaMikdash, that, that same san uh, sanctified, consecrated meat. Right, but what happens if you've gone further? So then the Mishnah says, chosrin. How? Oh, I'm sorry, it's not about if you've gone further. It says, if you, how much do you have to have to be concerned about getting back to nullify it? So Rabbi Meir, Omer, he says, Zev The concern here, all this case is the, the, the amount of a kabetza. Rabbi Huda Omer, they are more stringent. They say, even if you have as little as a kazai, you still need to come back. A kabetz is bigger than a kazai. The chachamim omrim, basar kodesh bekezayit, v'chametz bekebetza. The rabbis, chazal, say, one second, let's not treat all of these cases as the same. They are, in fact, different cases. Namely, that if you are trying to get home to nullify your chametz, you, ha you don't have to do that unless you're worried about a bekebetza. But if you're trying to deal with Hectish, then you are, we're more Mothman, we're going to say you need to take care of it, even with as small of an amount as a Kazite. Um, this mission is interesting because I think it really acknowledges that, you know, we could always be caught up with the different mitzvah at the same time. And yes, Pesach and getting rid of that chametz is super important, right? It's you eat that chametz accidentally, you're a high of curry. But there's something about this that's also really real, which is saying, like, here's where we're going to let you off the hook, where you don't really have to make yourself so crazy. And again, I like this because, you know, Pesach is the holiday where the crazy comes out a little bit sometimes, you know, where <laughs> all of our tendencies to sort of, you know, be very, very careful with keeping it. And I, this, this mission have felt like a deep breath. Well, that's a nice way to put it. Um, okay. Now, the Gemara on this Mishnah is long and exciting. There's a lot of different movable parts that we care about. And we're going to try to try to set it up and how it lines up. Yes. So Dana, I'm going to start here. Now. Right. So the Gemara gets into a discussion here about what the Sudas Mitzvah is for wedding. And that maybe there are cases where there isn't a, there's a feast, like a Suda for wedding, but it's not the Sudas Mitzvah. It's not the, you know, the, the Mitzvah piece of it. Right. And so they call one piece of it. It's called the Savlunut which apparently was like where gifts were given um, or something like that. So it was like a second feast. And then it says the following, Tanya, the teachers in a brisa, Rabbi Shimon Omer, Rabbi Shimon says, Any su'uda that's not really one for a mitzvah, a 
should not benefit from it. In other words, he really shouldn't be there and he, and and it's not one that he should partake in and and eat in it. Um, and so then the Gemara says, Kagon Mai, right? What's an example of this? I'm a Rabbi Yochanan. So again, remember, we're going for Mishnah to Amora. Rabbi Yochanan says, Kagon Bat Kohen Yisrael, right? Ubat Talmid Chacham La'am Ha'aretz. And so he lists here sort of like two types of couplings that the Gemara is then going to spend an awful lot of time discussing uh, that are not looked at as good. And one is a Bat Kohen who marries a Yisrael, and one is a Talmid Chacham, who the daughter of a Talmid Chacham who marries um, a uh, an Am Haaretz. And so then the Gemara goes on to basically explore this issue of the Bat Kohen. And it basically takes two views of this. I, again, it's a lot of Gemara to read, and I'm not going to um, read all of it. But first, it begins off by saying that something bad will happen if they get married. Um, and that basically, you know, it's, it's not something good to do. Um, and that eventually such a marriage leads to early death. Um, and, and they base this on Psukim, but that's what they do. But then they do something interesting, which is, and then they go through people who actually did this, right? So Rabbi Yeshua Nasi Bakahana Chalesh, right? So Rabbi Yehuda married a co, uh, Bat Kohen, and he became ill. Amar, and what did he say? He said, Aharon is not pleased that I'm like joining his descendants, but and that he is a son-in-law like me. Rabbi Izi bar Avin, Nasi Bekahana, Rabbi Izi bar Avin also married a Bakoin, Nafkumine, Tre Bene Simiche. And from him came two rabbis, two people who got Smicha. Rav Shesha Bereza Rav Izi, but Rav Yoshua Bereza Rav Izi. Right? So, and, and so he had these children from Rav Shesha and, and Rav Yoshua. I'm a Rav Papa. Rav Papa said, um, and again, uh, so this is it. So again, they're, they're moving a little bit. Um, the first example that they give for Rav Yoshua is uh is a tana and then they're moving to amoras um and so then Rapapa says Elo kahanta lo itre. had i not married uh a bat kohen i wouldn't have become wealthy so for him it worked out so rabbi yeshua got sick rab Izi has two sons who are tamidei chachamim Rapapa says it's because of him that he was blessed with wealth i'm a rav kahana rav kahana said and this one is interesting because his name sounds like he should be a Kohen, but we did talk about this before that there were multiple Rav Kahanas and not all of them were Kohanim. Elon Nisuche Kahanta Logale. He said, Had I not married a Kohen, I would not have been exiled, meaning he wouldn't have been exiled from Babel to Eretz Israel. Amrule. So when they heard this, what, what did his students say? He said, But you were exiled to a place of Torah. In other words, this can't be a punishment. You went to a good place. And Rav Kahana said, no, I wasn't exiled to a place of Torah in the way that people are usually exiled, meaning usually people leave their countries to study Torah on their own accord. He had, Rashi says that he actually had to leave. And so what's interesting here is that, you know, first the Gemara comes to make a statement, um, you know, that it's not a union that's really particularly blessed or one that should happen. I guess Kohanim should stay with Kohanim. Um, but that a Yisrael should not marry back Cohen. But then it really goes through real life examples of Tamidei Chachamim who did this. And each of them sort of shares what their each individual experience with some of them good and some of them not so good. Okay. Now from this, we move on to discussion of 
well, really a discussion of a feast, of a wedding feast, really, or any other kind of feast you might want. And at some point, and suddenly the, the Gemara is taking a much more abstemious kind of route, saying, really, you should not be partaking from any kind of feast that is, in fact, optional, as opposed to, let's say, a mitzvah feast, right? And that you'll end up, you'll end up in that exile where you to do so. So the Gemara goes on to say, well, what about these feasts? What if you have a su'uda? That's just a regular, it's just a, an optional feast, meaning it's not a requirement, it's not a mitzvah, or or if it is a mitzvah, it's an optional one. So here the Gemara says as follows, the rabbi has learned or taught, whatever, and so now we're going to have several different cases about specifically a Talmud Chacham, somebody who was a Torah scholar. No, miatem et gozalov. This is kind of the worst outcome anybody could ever fear in terms of their own personal experience of what would happen, you know, if, and again, the case was, if we're talking about a, to- a Talmid Chacham who might actually just eat too much at the particular feast, right? What's going to happen to him? He's going to end up with a destroyed house. His wife is going to become a widow. His children are going to become orphaned. He's going to forget all his Torah that he's learned. He'll end up, you know, embroiled in debate and conflict, and nobody will listen to him, and he will be mechalil shem Hashem. He will desecrate the name of God and the name of his teachers and the name of his father, meaning he will just simply demonstrate disrespect in every which way, and he will cause a bad name for himself and all of his children, you know, throughout the future generations. So the question, of course, is what is going on at these feasts that it brings such a such a miserable sentence? And I don't have a good answer, uh, which I really wish I did. But the idea that you could say, the idea that somebody is increasing their, their feasting, their meals in every which place, I suppose it's like, you know, chasing after the plenty, going after the banquet, instead of staying home and learning your Torah. If you're called such a Talmud Chacham, what are you doing over here? We should note that every time we're talking about a Talmud Chacham, and it, and it says these terrible things are going to happen to him, it's kind of like a, a prod to the Talmud Chacham to make sure that he acts completely on the up and up. It's not that somebody who would do these things, if they're not a Talmud Chacham, is going to then be liable for anything. You know, again, assuming that they're not. But the case itself, in terms of just being an objective situation for the Talmud Chacham being inherently bad is not going to apply just to everybody. Um, yeah. No, I, I, it's an interest. Look, I think it's trying to steer people away from gluttony and certainly in the Gemara where we see all the thing that, you know, the type of su'udas that happen in the, you know, Beit Reish Galuta and things like that. You know, we now waste time on social media and Netflix. I think this is what entertainment was for them. And so I think this was a way of really steering the Talmud Chacham away from this type of activity. Well said. Of course, then the Gemara picks this up and then kind of marries, pardon the pun, literally marries the situation of the Talmud Chacham to the person who's now, you know, the do- he's marrying off his daughter. So we've moved away from the daughter of the Kohen, but we're still talking marriage. And in this case, with, with the Torah scholar, because once we're talking about the Torah scholar, right, this is the associative nature of the Gemara that is going to carry it, carry it along. Tana Rabbanan, Le'olam, Yimkor, Adam. And this is really a very powerful statement about what it means to be not only a Talmud Chacham, a Torah scholar, but also in proximity to be within the, env- the environment or the family of the Talmud Chacham. Tana Rabbanan, Le'olam, Yimkor, Adam. Sell everything you own in order to be able 
to marry the daughter of a Talmud Chacham, meaning the presumption is, of course, that the that the bridegroom is going to give some kind of gift to the either to the wife-to-be or to her family, and that the idea here is, well, if you don't have a lot of money, but this is the right person for you, and this is, in fact, the daughter of a Talmud Chacham must simply be of the right, you know, the right level for you if you can manage it. You make sure that you so sell everything off for the sake of it, which, of course, begs the question, you know, is that family with this daughter going to want to marry, you know, somebody who doesn't have uh, any anything in reserve, right? He's given everything to the dowry or to the bride price or whatever. And then the Gemara goes on to say, So what happens? He says, well, what would happen if this guy would die or if he gets put into exile and he cannot raise his own children, then at the very least, if he's married to the daughter of a Talmud Chacham, he can rest assured that his children will grow up to be Talmud Chachamim. But if he were to marry the daughter of an ignoramitz, and I'm Haaretz, and I'm Haaretz here, right? And then if he would end up di- dying or be exiled, then his children would remain Amei Haaretz. They would end up remain ignoramitzes because they don't have the right kind of family structure or the right mother really to teach them. And of course, on the one hand, you know that's really presumptive, and on the other hand, it certainly explains to us just how much prize and pride was given to the Talmud Chacham, or, you know, again, his daughter. And so this goes on, right? Anybody, one should be willing to sell everything he has to marry the daughter of a, of a Talmud Chacham or to marry her off, right? If if it's your own daughter and she's going to marry the Talmud Chacham, that's really your priority. Right. And then well, I this just is, want to say, I think yes, it's ahead. a nice acknowledgement in a way, look, women did not have schooling the way that we do. And certainly we have examples, a few examples in the Gemara of learned women like Buria, Yalta, maybe one could make an argument. But I think the idea here is that a woman who grows up in a ta- the daughter of a Tamil Chacham, there's just some Torah she's going to know and therefore can be responsible for their education in a way that a woman who doesn't grow up that way would not know. So there's an inequality here, like, well, why not just educate all the women to begin with? <laughs> but but <laughs> I, I, I'm glad to see it's at least a little bit acknowledged. No, I, think that, I, think it's acknowledged I think there's also something to be said for the fact that you know, your environment, You people are products of their environments, right? Somebody who grows up in a musical household will know, will have more music in them. Even if they themselves are not all that musical, they'll just know it better, right? I choose music because if it's out loud, then it's going to be in the air. But I would say that's probably true of a scientist's home or a businessman's home, or in fact, a, t- a t- Torah scholar's home, that it's kind of there and, and, and you drink it in, you know, as you go. Um, I want to come back to the line that closes off this p- piece that I was just talking about because there's one more case again about somebody who should be willing to sell all he, all of his property in order to be able to marry the Talmud, the daughter of the Talmud Chacham because then the Gemara says but what if he can't find a daughter of a Talmud Chacham to marry? So that I think is also a very careful practical question right because not everybody's going to be able to marry the daughter of the Talmud Chacham so he says well then in that case go marry one of the great people of the generation the daughter rather of one of the great people of the generation and so let the person be pious and righteous even if they're not talking Torah scholars, right? And then what happens if you, and the Gemara goes through all these different cases, like meaning if you can't find the daughter of a Tamil Chacham, find the daughter of one of the great people of the generation. You can't find the daughter of the great people of the generation, so then go find somebody who's a Rosh Knesset, somebody who's the head of the congregation. You can't find one of those and go marry. And this, I think, is very interesting that becomes the next line. The charity collectors, right? The people who, the Gabayit Gabayit Sadaka, who go along to 
capture everybody's tzedakah and then, you know, distribute it. And if you can't find the daughter of a charity collector, then you should marry the daughter of a school teacher. Now, this in this case, it's not a school teacher, it's specifically of children, right? It's not it's not a Talmud Chacham who's a teacher, but Milam Deitinokot, somebody who teach, teaches school children. And then, what if you can't do that? Well, you might really be in trouble because that does seem to be the bottom of the totem pole in this list, Rachman Zlan, really. But the bottom line is, no matter what you do, you should not marry the daughter of an Am Haaretz because, and this is just, you know, in our in our colorful language of the Gemara, this is up there on the list. Lo yisabat ame haaretz mipnei shehen shekets when sheretz. They are vermin, and their wives are creepy crawlies. Vaal benotehen huomer arur shochev im kol habehima. And there's a verse in Devarim that says that somebody who, you know, the daughters of the, the ame haaretz are called it, it, that person would be quote cursed as he is who lies with an animal, which is insulting in so many ways to this poor daughter who all she happened to do was be born to a family of Ameh Haaretz. Um, I want to go back up on the daf just a drop to say, to just note this very beautiful image that says we're talking when we do find to be able to marry the daughter of a Talmud Chacham, right? The man finds the daughter of a Talmud Chacham or the, wait, what's the other case, right? That you can marry, you marry the daughter of a Talmud Chacham or... I'm sorry, or you marry off your daughter to a, to a Talmud Chacham, right? Meaning one way or another, you end up with a Talmud Chacham coming into the family, right? So then, um, so the Gemara says as follows, Mashal We're talking about grapes on a vine, like marrying like, right? It is a beautiful and acceptable type of thing. This is a song that is sung at weddings. The idea that, you know, people have found their, their, proper match, that it's a really good match, um, and that it is indeed, like Mary's like, that this should be uh, a beautiful match in heaven. And then it goes again to say, you don't marry the daughter of an ignoramus, because that's going to be not in ve'agefen, but in ve'agefen, but mashal in ve'agefen, but in ve'asne, right? Hasne meaning the brambleberries, right? It's it's uh, the, the grape to brambleberries. Now, there's nothing wrong with brambleberries per se, but it doesn't match up with the with the beautiful grape in that same line. And that's it. And the Gemara says davar keor, meaning it's unseemly, it's ugly, and it's not acceptable. Do not do that. So we're prizing the tamid chacham, we're panning the ame haaretz, and we've got a whole hierarchy within in society of which you know the the hierarchy of, of how good you could possibly make your match, either, again, for your own self to marry the daughter of one of these people or to marry off your daughter to one of these people. Well, I, you know, this is a great example of, because that first half is a song, and then you have, like, the second half that nobody knows. <laughs> so right. I just thought it was, like, cause, like, that piece you couldn't really sing, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a very well-known passage. I just Can you imagine going to a wedding and saying... Look at these people. They don't match. That's a terrible exactly. way. Exactly. Like, so that's what I awful. thought was funny. It's like we take the first half of that, but we don't sing the second half of that. Um, so I just want to jump and we'll conclude with this to one last very famous piece of the Gemara here. So that was one, the Inbei Geffen, Geffen. And so the Gemara then gets into a whole discussion about how terrible Amehaaretz are and that you can go after them and maybe even kill them. It, 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 it's, it's weird. And the, the language on it is a little bit extreme, actually. And I guess also... Um, and again, I don't always try to talk about current events, but thinking about what's going on in the world, there's a particular 
you know, how they're talking about the MARs is a little bit striking. Um, and I'm not sure that I'm totally comfortable with it. But Rabbi Akiva comes. I mean, the the rhetoric is really bad. I have to assume that there is more to this than than meets the eye in terms of why this would be the hierarchy and why there would be such an extreme, extreme language, right? You and, know, and, missive nature of the, right. And yeah. and it's also interesting to me because the way um how it's present sometimes in the Mishnah, it's more just a category of somebody who's like not careful with Truman Maser, but here it's really like a demonization of the Amharis. But that's like a whole right. other discussion that maybe we'll get into one time on the top. But there's a very famous passage here. So as we all know that Rabbi Akiba actually didn't make it to a yeshiva until he was 40 years old and didn't actually, you know, I guess would be what we would call a modern day Baal Juba. And so the Gemara says as follows, Tanya, I'm a Rabbi Akiba. When I was an Amharis, Amarti, <laughs> who will give me a Torah scholar so that I can bite him like a donkey? So just in terms of everyone knows who's been learning with us that I'm obsessive about the biographies of our Tanayim. So it's interesting just to see Rabbi Akiva really talk about himself, that he really was an Amha'aretz. But it's not just that he was an Amha'aretz that he didn't know. It's that he was an Amha'aretz that characterizes himself the way that they're talking about Amha'aretz, that Amha'aretz were people who actively hated Tamidei Chachamim. And so what he's saying is, is that he said, when I was an Am Haaretz, I would say, who will give me a Torah scholar so I can bite him like a donkey? Amri Lo Tamidav, so a student said to him, Rabbi, Amor Kekalev, right? Like, say you want to bite him like a dog, right? We don't think of donkeys biting, we think of dogs biting. Amr Lahem, he says to him, Zen no Sheikh V'Shover Etzem, the donkey bites and breaks bones. The Zen no Sheikh may no Shover Etzem. Whereas this dog bites and does not break bones. So the idea here is that his hatred was so great of the Ame Ha'aretz that what did he want to do is that he actually wanted to, um, uh, that he actually wanted to, you know, cause harm. What's interesting about this is, is that the Gemara, the, the, there's a Gemara in Ketubos, which we'll get to, and that's Samachbet Amadbet, and that's where it talks about the Rabbi Akiva was also an Ame Ha'aretz till age 40, and then he went to learning. Um, but what it talks about there is actually, that he had like good mido, like he actually was a good person. So it's interesting to sort of see the contrast here because this Gemara seems to suggest a little bit different. I think what some of the Mepharshim explain here is that it was an arrogance, like in a way he was jealous of the Tamidei Chachamim and that's why he sort of, because, you know, he felt that they, um, not jealous, excuse me, I want to say that differently. It's that he he saw the way Tamidei Chachamim sometimes behaved towards Ameha Ha'aret. And when he was in Amaretz, he didn't like that. Um, and so he did actually want to wish them hard. And so I think it's interesting that Mepharshim go there with that, because I wonder if in a way what Rabbi Akiva is, when you initially read it, what maybe you're thinking is, is okay. You know, Rabbi Akiva is basically saying, no, it's true what we're saying about Ameh Haaretz. They actually want to cause hard to Tamidei Chachamim. But maybe it's different. Maybe what Rabbi Akiva is saying is, yes, it's because of your attitude and how you treat and talk about Ameh Haaretz this is how I felt about you. You caused me to want to think about you that way. Um, I think that's really important insight. I think that also, you know, listen, we do have this whole lifelong biography of Rabbi Akiva, you know, in a way that we don't have for most others. The fact that this is his life, um, I think is really interesting. He does totally turn himself around and he's, you know, gets out of that kind of slur. Right. And, and, and I'll just, We'll end with this. I mean, remember, it's Rabbi Kibu says that what's the most important pasuk in the Torah? 
And there's something about this stuff that's not so kamocha. So I don't know. I'm going to read this that I wonder if Rabbi Akiva is giving a little bit of a, you know, he's trying to say a little bit like, we're, yeah, it's a little bit of a, it's dig. a little dig. Think about how you're talking about Ame Haaretz. And, and, and you want to think about why Ame Haaretz don't like you? Well, maybe it's also because of the way you talk about the Ame Haaretz. That's our DAF discussion for the day. Thank you for join us, joining us. Rank us, review us where you get your podcast. Come talk to us on our Facebook page and tell us what you think about marrying a Talmud Chacham, not marrying a Talmud Chacham, and the slurs against an Amharitz and ignoramus, even perhaps to our to this day in different contexts. And thank you to Rabbi Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Until tomorrow, go and learn. Thank you.